Hi, it's Alice. Thank goodness for TJ Styles and David Blight. They've dedicated their lives to understanding parts of America's past so that we can try to figure out what the heck is happening right now. Both TJ Styles and David Blight are historians and biographers and wonderful writers. Biography is a meeting ground between scholarly and literary virtues. To understand a life, you have to understand the world. That's TJ Styles. He and David Blight write about slavery and race in American history, and each one has a remarkable talent for making that history pop off the page. David Blight received a Pulitzer Prize for his book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet for Freedom. And T.J. Stiles received a Pulitzer for The First Tycoon, The Epic Life of Cornelius Vanderbilt. And then he won again for Custer's Trials, A Life on the Frontier of a New America. These writers are both so eloquent, whether they're talking about the lives of their historical subjects or their own lives, that we want you to get to know them. On this episode, then, Meet T.J. Stiles and David Blight, along with, you could say, Jesse James, General George Custer, Cornelius Vanderbilt, and Frederick Douglass. This is What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. 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 My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. (laughs) And then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. If you know T.J. Stiles only through his books, you might be surprised to learn he's a karate master. At the dojo in San Francisco, which he started, and where he has taught for almost 15 years, he's known as Styles Sensei. But then again, if you've read T.J. Styles' books or David Blight's, you would know that people are often more complex and confounding than they seem. T.J. Styles grew up in Foley, Minnesota, a town of about 2,500. Most of his classmates stayed put to run their families' farms. But Stiles had aspirations to make an imprint on the larger world. He went to Carleton College in Minnesota to study history. Then he moved to New York City to study at Columbia and to study karate under a legendary master named Mori Masataka. That definitely piqued the interest of our interviewer, Gail Eichenthal, who spoke with Stiles in 2019 for the Academy of Achievement. David Blight, by the way, has his own surprises, which we'll get to in the second half of this episode. But back first to Gail and TJ Styles. When did you first discover karate and what did it do for you? Well, I started in high school, actually. Uh, in this little town, there was a music teacher who had a second degree black belt, taught for free at 6.30 in the morning, twice a week. And I found that it was 
something that was about personal development, not simply developing a sense of personal power, but um, of constant improvement, constantly developing myself and my ability, and it's a, it's a lifelong discipline. What is the connection to writing? You mentioned discipline. Yes, discipline. Discipline, self-knowledge, uh, humility, um, the desire to constantly be better, to not be satisfied. Um, at the very end of his life, my teacher um, told me something. I went to visit him about 48 hours before he passed away. And he was a man of few words. He believed in teaching through action rather than um, by spouting a lot of sayings. But at the end of his life, he summed up his teachings with uh, an expression. He said, for rice to grow, it can't simply shoot straight up. It has to be able to bow. Uh, one of the reasons I have a wonderful relationship with my editor, who has edited all of my books, Jonathan Siegel of Knopf, is that he's a tough editor. It's about the work. It's not about your ego. It's not about how you feel coming out of the process. It's about the quality of the work. And you do what's necessary to make the work better. And that's very much my feeling about myself and about my work. And about karate. Yes, it's something I got very much straight from karate. Where did the vision of becoming a historian come from, from that small town? Well, I, I think that, um, again, this is a common story for writers who grew up in relatively isolated places. Um, there were two things that came out of it. One was the fact that the life of the mind was, was my way of um, escaping is too strong a word, of discovering the world. And that I was drawn very early on to information, to wanting to know things. And history is about everything. It is about everything that human beings have done. Uh, it encompasses everything from the environment to politics. It is about individual achievement. It is about the fate of nations. All of these things made it exciting for me from a very early age. Um, my uh, parents like to joke, uh, well not joke actually, to tell the story about how when I was in third grade uh, we had to write a paper. And so I told them I was going to write a paper about, the, about World War II in the Pacific. And then I came back to them and said, well actually the paper is only two paragraphs long so I'd better cut it down. <laughs> and uh, you know that just shows how early on I had this passion for history. And Later on, when I started to, to think about history, I, I was drawn to academia, and yet the pleasure I found in reading it was always there. The pleasure of being a reader, of thinking about it in literary terms, was always inherent in my love for history. And it was something that, even through all the gyrations of my life, I find myself drawn back to history and also to writing to writing well, to writing in a literary manner to the best of my ability. I find that very interesting because, um, you know, researching and writing uh, a biography or a book of history sounds challenging enough, but to infuse it with a literary style, um, does that come from your reading? Did you read fiction? Yes. In my advice always to uh, people who are writing trying to write, or academics who are trying to write for the public, is you have to be the consumer of your own work. That uh, readers are like children. They can always tell when adults are faking it. 
And if you are trying to fake it with your work, it won't work. That it has to be true and authentic. It has to come from the heart, and it also has to be something that you have to write something that you would find pleasure in reading. So you have to read history, you have to read biography, but also, uh, at least for me, I have to read fiction. And I'm always thinking about how fiction writers do what they do and why. Um, what is it that makes a work successful? Uh, the first novel that I was able to review was Tommy Orange's spectacular novel, There, There, which I reviewed for Alta, California Magazine. And it is, it, it's a remarkable book in which each chapter is written in a different voice. Uh, one might be second person, another might be first person. It is an incredible, dazzling, polyphonic novel. And yet, in there, there are lessons that I can take when I write. Why is it that it's compelling from start to finish? Again, these ideas of raising questions in the mind of the reader that novelists talk about, that David Lodge talked about, for example, in his book, The Art of Fiction. Um, how is it that we are pulled along? What are the questions that we want to see the answers to that are opened up for us in the very opening chapters? This is something I can learn from. I remember listening to a, an interview with Lin-Manuel Miranda in which he was talking about something very well known in musical theater, the I Want song. And I thought, that's something I have to remember. You know, what is the I Want song in my biography? What are the different I Want songs? Where do I bring in the reader and give them a sense of the agenda and the desires of the people I'm writing about? I have to think about them as characters. But also, I think it's very important to remember that, that many authors write, especially nonfiction authors, but also novelists and short story writers, we often write because we feel that there's something wrong in the world. And we want to understand where it came from and we want to address those wrongs. So for example, when I wrote about Jesse James, I did not have a lifelong fascination with Jesse James. I was not one of those people who had spent all my life researching him. I actually found my way to him through the questions I had and the issues that mattered to me about America today as well as in the 19th century. These are issues of race, of civil rights, of human equality, and the resistance to the emergence of all those ideas. And I actually got to writing about Jesse James by wanting to write about one of the men he robbed, whose name was Adelbert Ames, who had been a Union general, who had fully embraced the emancipation and the birth of civil rights, and he became a leader of, uh, moved to Mississippi where he was military governor, then resigned from the army to join uh, the Republican Party, which was the flagship party of civil rights after the Civil War, and was one of the most radical um, senators and governors, um, worked closely with a large array of black politicians, and was driven out of Mississippi in a white supremacist insurrection in 1875. But nobody's heard of Ames. And I have to put out the welcome mat for readers. I have to pull them in so that they know they're getting a good story, so that they know they're going to change their understanding of someone they already know about. And so instead of writing about Ames, I wrote about James, who tried to rob Adelbert Ames in 1876 in the famed and disastrous Northfield robbery. And that robbery brought to a head what made Jesse James distinctive as an American outlaw, the fact that he kept trying to bring in politics into his bandit career, that he'd allied himself with a newspaper editor who was trying to bring former Confederates in Missouri back into power, that Jesse James was from a slave-owning family 
who had fought for the Confederacy, who had been in a death squad murdering neighbors who were Unionists at the age of 16. And that this is the side of America and its violence and its hatred that defines us alongside the triumphs of that era, uh, which established civil rights for the first time. So these questions, the sense that there's something wrong in the world, and I have to understand it, along with my desire to write about human beings and their complexity, even the worst human beings. When I read a book that is snarky, that treats everybody as a scoundrel, in which no one is a real human being, um, because human beings don't see themselves as scoundrels, even the worst of us, uh, I think they're missing something. That, that this author is not thinking, what is the logic of why they did what they did? People make mistakes. People end in disaster. And yet there is a logic. There is a purpose and a meaning and a value system and a strategy or at least uh, a set of desires that drives every human being. And I want to understand that. All these things come together when I write. Most Americans are familiar with Jesse James from popular culture. He's often depicted as the classic Wild West outlaw, not someone really to be taken seriously. But Jesse James himself wanted to be taken seriously, T.J. Stiles says, as a Confederate loyalist with political motives, not just a wanton criminal. He wrote to the newspapers in his day to state his case. And so when T.J. Stiles set out to write about Jesse James, he decided to take him at his word. And that, Stiles says, is what distinguishes his book from others. E.P. Thompson said in, uh, I believe it was the prologue to his great book, The Making of the English Working Class, that he wished to rescue his subjects from the enormous condescension of posterity. And the enormous condescension of posterity is a factor in all our understanding of all the figures of the past. Those who are heroes, those who were villains, those who are simply somewhere in between filling out the range of humanity. Jesse James was a figure who had suffered condescension. Now, I wasn't rescuing him in the sense of showing him as a positive figure, but I was showing him as a significant figure. No other outlaw was using those excuses. It wasn't just an excuse. To understand his times changed the way we see him, but it just started off for me reading the evidence and simply saying, this is what he says about himself. Let's take it seriously. Jesse James' Last Rebel of the Civil War was T.J. Stiles' first biography and a very successful one. He then spent seven years on his next biography, The First Tycoon, The Epic Life of Cornelius Vanderbilt, it was considered groundbreaking and won the National Book Award for Nonfiction and the Pulitzer Prize for Biography. Cornelius Vanderbilt was a 19th century shipping and railroad mogul. He went into business when he was just 16 years old by starting his own ferry service. This was shortly before the War of 1812. Eventually, he became a shipping magnate, and then he went into the railroad biz and built train routes between the East and the West. He literally helped to change the geography of the United States. So for T.J. Stiles, Vanderbilt's life became a terrific vehicle for tracking the physical and cultural transformation of America. Stiles says it was largely Vanderbilt who fathered the corporate economy and who made competition an American value. One of the most interesting moments in Vanderbilt's career came in 1838 when he took over the first corporation that he ever controlled. And it was an early mercantilist corporation, 
established to guarantee a um, uh, turnpike across Staten Island and also steam ferry service to Manhattan. In return for rights to do these things, the corporation was required to serve the public interest. It had to provide ferry service at times when it was not profitable to run a ferry, late at night, etc. When Vanderbilt took it over, he ignored all of those public service requirements and he was sued by a competitor, his own cousin, for running the corporation for the sole view of profit. Well, today you get sued if you don't run a corporation for the sole view of profit. So even before the Supreme Court at the end of the 19th century began to redefine the corporation, in his life we see how businessmen seized upon, and they were mostly men, seized upon uh, this new device of the corporation and saw its potential and began to transform it from within. And so in all these ways, Vanderbilt uh, himself personifies, he was a major figure in and also a representative figure in the rise of the world that we take for granted today. This book uh, got a lot of attention and some major awards, a Pulitzer and a National Book Award. How did that change your writing life? Um, it, it's interesting. Um, on one hand, uh, I was really thinking when I finished that book that um, uh, I mean, that book was a seven-year struggle. The first tycoon took me seven years to research and write. Um, at one point, I was running out of money. I had applied for a fellowship at the New York Public Library. I still lived in New York at the time. And I had met uh, and befriended uh, George Plimpton, whose great-grandfather was Adelbert Ames, a figure in my Jesse James book. And he said he would write me a letter of, of recommendation. I thought, oh, wonderful, I might actually get this fellowship. Uh, as I was reading his letter uh, saying he would write uh, me a letter of recommendation, he'd be happy to, I heard on the radio that he died. <laughs> so it just everything about that book was, and of course I was, you know, like George Costanza, I was thinking about what it meant for me instead of the death of really a wonderful human being, a great benefactor as well as figure in the literary community. Um, and, you know, but I, I got that fellowship, and that sustained me for more than two years because I was living on... Um, on a shoestring. Uh, when uh, the book came out, the Great Recession had hit. I really thought that I was done for. Um, the National Book Award uh, came with $10,000, and when your business plan depends upon you winning the National Book Award, you know that you're in trouble. I, the problem is, is that you know I, I still I've not hit the New York Times bestseller list. Life is still a struggle financially. Um, seeking grants. Um, trying to find other ways to extend my um, income, you know, is, is a constant struggle. I'm not one of the people who's, who's hit the jackpot financially. But it is possible, at least it has been possible, to pursue this life because of the recognition. Speaking engagements, grants and fellowships, um, you know, these things uh, are part of the recognition that you get when you win a major award. And yet, once you win a major award, you realize, sort of, you feel like you're at the summit, and then you realize how lucky you are. You look around the landscape, and you see how many great writers and how many great books. And you work your heart out to reach that level where you're considered for these awards. And yet, there is inevitably an element of random chance. One different member of a jury might mean that you never would have been considered for that award. And so... You know, I've been very lucky. 
and, and I'm still writing because I've been very lucky. But I'm very much aware of that. So I believe it was before you found out about the Pulitzer for Vanderbilt that you turned your attention to General Custer? That's right. Well, actually, what, what happened is when I, I had finished the book and I hadn't come out yet, and I originally wanted to write a book about the 14th Amendment, and this underlies a lot of my work, so I'll just mention it briefly. Uh, the 14th Amendment is not simply about uh, racial emancipation. It, it includes within it a doctrine that was recognized by the Supreme Court in the 1920s, which is the incorporation of the Bill of Rights against the states. Before the 14th Amendment, states violated the Bill of Rights routinely. So, for example, abolitionist literature was not allowed. There were state churches in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Uh, North Carolina, until after the Civil War, required that you not only be a white male, but that you profess faith in Jesus Christ to be able to vote. Um, so speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, all these things were violated by the states routinely. The reason the 14th Amendment, which guarantees all of us these protections from all levels of government, the reason it came into being is because of the self-assertion of the newly emancipated in the South. African Americans mobilized, they, they sought their freedom in, in small ways, in large ways, they organized politically, they organized schools, and there was a backlash. The entire premise of slave so slaveholding society was that um, African Americans were inferior and that they were better off in slavery, that they were incapable of governing themselves. As they defied that through the great rebellion uh, of the Civil War, in which about a quarter of enslaved people freed themselves. As they organized and pushed a crisis, the retaliation, the cycle of crisis that resulted, led to the 14th Amendment. And so I like to say, um, freed slaves freed us all. Um, that, that my freedom was dependent upon the self-assertion of those who had been slaves. And so uh, I wanted to write a book about this. And my editor was with me all the way. He was saying, you know, we should do this. And yet when, you know, the presses, um, people looked at the financial record of books on similar themes, they're like, you know, we can do it, but we can't give him the advance that he wants and frankly needed to survive. So I thought, okay, how do I write about these questions by putting out the welcome mat to the reader, to inviting them in through a subject that they know. And I found my way to, to Custer, who had always been someone who was on my radar screen. It's impossible to write about the mid-19th century without encountering Custer again and again. And I thought Custer was a figure of reconstruction. Custer was somebody who was assigned to hunt the Ku Klux Klan. Custer was someone who was in charge of a large area of Texas after the end of the Civil War. He was someone who dealt with all of these issues in a very personal level through the self-assertion of a self-emancipated woman named Eliza Brown, who really was his household manager. The way in which women were asserting themselves, in which his wife, an intelligent woman who resented the restrictions placed on women, Libby Custer, and the way in which I could write about women because of her writings and the way she saved the letters of the, the couple, I could write about women in a way I'd never been able to because of the limitations of sources. I could write a book in, that passed the Bechtel test, in which two women have a conversation with each other that's not about a man. And, and the archives often make that impossible. But in this case, the archivist was Custer's wife. The, the great memoirist was not Custer, but his wife. And she was interested in Eliza Brown. She was interested in relationships with other women 
And, and she was someone who was a three-dimensional complex character. Her relationship with Eliza Brown said a great deal about race as well as about women at that time. And so uh, as I, the more I thought about it, I thought about the potential within this book to present a round, rich portrait of America at the time through three-dimensional characters and, and how surprising they were. Not always for the better, but um, how rich and interesting they were. I could write about the same issues and even more by writing a biography of Custer. We tend to think of him as, you know, Custer's last stand and that was it. Out of your book, we find a very complicated human being. You describe him as intelligent yet bigoted, volatile, a full-fledged human being. Often, again, because writing about the 19th century, we have to rely on the archives, we have to rely on letters. Sometimes, though I don't like to do this, on recollections decades later. Uh, occasionally we have diaries. Um, these do not always present the full picture of the human being. So, for example, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt comes across in the record someone who very well may have been dyslexic. He loathed papers. He could read, he could write, but he could write the same three-letter word three different ways in the same letter. And so as soon as he got a clerk, everything was dictated. And so there's, there's the record speaks to his business career, and yet the personal side, a man who had 13 children, who had daughters who were as, as strong-willed as he was, who sued to break his will because he left almost everything to one son, um, you know, the complicated personal life that he had is, and his struggles as a father, it was so hard to find those sides of him. Fortunately, he had, for me, not for him, he had a son who was a, a gambling addict and um, was constantly borrowing money from famous men, and he wrote all these self-pitying letters in which he presented a, a rich portrait of his own father as going back and forth and struggling to figure out how to deal with this son who was so problematic. And that was my window, my main window into the full humanity of this very strong figure. With Custer, his complexity and contradictions just explode on the page. Um, a friend of his said there was just never any doubt about what he was thinking and feeling. It was all expressed. And, and he was someone who was constantly struggling to present himself to different people in a way that he thought would advantage himself. And so he's contradictory, he's presenting false fronts, and yet he, he couldn't restrain his own inner life. His emotions were always out and present on the surface, which meant I could write an interior biography in a way that I'd struggled to before. He was capable of, of changing his mind. He was capable of a great depth of feeling. He passionately loved his wife. When he thought that he'd wrecked their marriage, he... he basically destroyed his career to try to save his marriage, but he was saving it from himself. When he went through the Civil War, he entered the Civil War as an opponent of Lincoln's election. He was a firm unionist, and yet he was opposed to emancipation. And yet through daily contact with slavery, and especially through the personal influence of Eliza Brown, this incredibly strong woman, who also was creating advantages for herself, who was, was not there is the, is the magical Negro, to use the term um, from literature, who's there to save the, the white people from themselves. She spoke her mind, she spoke very clearly about race, and yet 
she knew that she had to take every advantage she could to create some measure of safety and security for herself in a world that offered her none. And so she was a fascinating, real human being, and it influenced Custer. And by the end of the Civil War, he, he writes to relatives in personal letters about how he's seen the evil of slavery, especially through her intervention, and he sees how wrong it is. And yet, he slips back, he falls in with uh, um, planters in Texas, he begins to think about post-war politics, and his convictions, his passions, his bigotry rise to the surface again. And so we see somebody who is himself struggling with the great issues of American history that so define the Civil War era, and we see why after the Civil War Reconstruction failed. Because people like Custer were turning their backs on it. Because they couldn't overcome their personal failings in dealing with the great political and, and social struggles of the age, and of our age as well. What was his fatal mistake at the Battle of the Little Bighorn that led to his own death and that of many others? Well, um, this is what everyone knows about Custer. It is how he died. The fact that he died disastrously at the hands of the Lakotas and Cheyennes and their allies um, at the Little Bighorn in 1876. Uh, and yet, in my book, the battle appears in the epilogue. I end the chapter, the last formal chapter of the book, uh, with Libby Custer waving goodbye to her husband as he leaves the last camp to go off on this campaign. And I pick up the epilogue uh, nearly two years later when the Army holds a court of inquiry to understand exactly what happened. So I could go through all the details of, of what he decisions he made, the um, arguments that are made over his choices, um, what he might have done differently. But really, the one thing I want to say in a short interview is this. Um, what uh, the, the great historian of the West, Robert Utley, said, by focusing on Custer and his mistakes, we neglect the most important aspect of the Little Bighorn, which is the fact that it isn't so much that Custer lost as his native enemies won. And they won because they fought extremely well, because they were willing to hurl their lives into the balance to protect their autonomy and sovereignty and their traditional economy, because they were preserving conquests they had made that the Fort Laramie Treaty had actually recognized years earlier and the U.S. government was trying to revoke. Uh, they were at the height of their power and they were um, being mistreated and they knew it. And they were confident and they were militant. They were extremely well led and they fought extremely well and they earned that victory. Well, the resonance of these stories today is inescapable. Uh, we, we just marked the 400th anniversary of the first slave coming to America. Uh, Native Americans uh, still have plights that are unimaginable, very rough lives. As you, as you focus on the 19th century, you must be very aware that there is this resonance with, with today. Yeah, the, it's, it's very interesting writing about the past. One thing I often say about uh, the 19th century, the 18th century as well, is that uh, while I often talk about uh, the conflicts and, and what went wrong, um, the, the saving grace in the United States, what I hope certainly will, will prove to be the saving grace, is the fact that flawed individuals put in place ideas and created systems that were greater than themselves, 
that were capable of far more than their own limitations. And so when, for example, it's often pointed out quite correctly that the United States did not live up to, and in some ways still does not live up to, the Declaration of Independence. And those great words that Jefferson wrote, that all men are created equal, and we have unalienable rights. Of course we have not lived up to these ideas, and this is something we have to understand and examine and stress. But we have those words. We have that idea. While, say, white men struggled for their freedom and independence, they put out these ideas in broad general terms, which then could be taken up by the next generation and expanded through struggle. So, so yes, present-mindedness is an important part of what drives us. A sense of morality, a sense of right and wrong has to play a role. And yet, I often say when I write a book, if I'm not surprised by something, if I don't change my mind about something important in the process of researching and writing that book, I'm not doing my job. I have to be alive to the evidence, I have to be alive to the way people at the time thought about things. I can't interpret them through my own understanding because I'm trying to understand uh, what happened before we got to where we are now. T.J. Stiles is currently at work on a biography of Theodore Roosevelt. Our thanks to him and to journalist Gail Eichenthal, who recorded this interview at the Academy of Achievement Summit in 2019. At the 2022 summit, another of our favorite journalists, Mary Jordan, sat down to talk to another one of our favorite biographers, David Blight. Blight, as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Frederick Douglass. When it came out, a reviewer for the Washington Post wrote, Douglass himself was apparently never recorded by the phonograph operators, but in Blight's pages, his voice again rings out loud and clear, melancholy and triumphant, still prophesying, still agitating, still calling us to action. David Blight has written many other books as well, mostly focused on slavery and race in American history. And he is a professor of history, African-American studies, and American studies at Yale. He's also director of Yale's Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. But although he's a preeminent historian and academic today, his family origins were humble. And in that way, his own story is a very American one, much like the lives he explores in his books. And that's what was on Mary Jordan's mind when she began their conversation. So you were raised in a trailer park in Flint, Michigan. God, how'd you find that out? (laughs) Incredible. It's one of the poorest places. Well, I was actually lucky to grow up in Flint, Michigan when I did because it was post-World War II America, the 50s and 60s. It was a boom city, unlike today, when uh, my hometown has had nothing but bad news for a decade. Uh, Before that, it was the decline of General Motors. But my brother and I were raised by thoroughly working-class parents. Uh, My father worked for General Motors, as everyone else did in Flint. And my mother became a secretary. Neither of them ever went to college, but they had a value, uh, a deep value, that their sons would. 
And again, we were lucky uh, to be growing up at that time because the great state universities in the Midwest of the United States were very good universities, but also cheap. David Blight went to Michigan State. His brother went to University of Michigan, though they do still talk to one another. They'd gotten an excellent education at Flint's public schools because in those years, the school system was well-funded by General Motors stockholders and had the resources a wealthy corporation can bring. And I had two very good uh, high school history teachers who uh, had something to do with my interest in history. Uh, One named Jack Howe, who taught what used to be known as Western Civilization. And then a Mildred Hodges, who was my American history teacher, whom I wouldn't say I admired because she was so stern and she always compared me to my older brother, which was not good teaching. But she taught me something. She taught me a great deal about what she always called causes and consequences. And I think in spite of herself, she had a lot to do with inspiring me with a sense of history, a sense of the past. Um, I was attracted to storytelling. I was was attracted to narratives about people. And that's at the end of the day what history is. I was attracted to big stories about the nation, my country. And I I was coming of age in the 60s, after all. Uh, I went to college in the late 60s, early 70s, when the great questions of our time were about race and war and peace. (laughs) And lo and behold, they often still are. (laughs) So you studied American history in college, and then you got a PhD in history, and your dissertation was about Frederick Douglass. Yes. Your book about him later on would win the Pulitzer Prize, but you were really interested, obviously, in Frederick Douglass very young. Mm-hmm. When did Frederick Douglass first get on your radar and why? Well, I don't even recollect exactly when Frederick Douglass got on my radar. Probably in college, because I don't think I learned anything about him in high school, which shows us uh, what a different time we live in. I did take the first ever black history course taught at Michigan State in what I think was 1968, could have been 69. It was taught by a man named Leslie Rout, who was African American, although his field was Latin American history. His field was Brazil. He wrote about Juan Perón, but they probably took Les aside and said, Les, you're black, teach black history. And I was inspired by that. I probably learned something about Douglas there. But I started learning about Douglas when I was a high school teacher. I taught for seven years in Flint, uh, the first seven years of my career. That's what I did. It's all I wanted to do at that point. And uh, we were creating courses about black history. I had a poster of Douglas in my classroom at that point. I first read his narrative, the first autobiography by Douglas, at some point there in the 1970s. And so when I went off to graduate school, uh, to PhD program in the late 1970s, I wanted to study abolitionists, the coming of the Civil War, and I was particularly interested in the black abolitionists. And if you're interested in black abolitionists, Douglas is at the pinnacle of that. He also left us by far the most 
material to work with, most sources, most writing. Uh, in fact, he wrote millions of words. And I was attracted, I think, to Douglas more for his language and his words than I even was the, the kind of heroism of his story. I mean, I loved the story too. But even before I landed in a PhD program, I had this interest in Douglas. Whether I would write about him, I didn't know that for sure. Um, but then after I wrote my first book on Douglas, which was dissertation, I, I spent years writing essays about him and editing editions of his autobiographies and so on. But frankly, I was always trying to get Douglas out of my life. Uh, enough already. That didn't go well. That didn't go well. And the reason I didn't get him out of my life ultimately uh, has everything to do with encountering a private collector of manuscripts about 15 or 16 years ago. Uh, I was in Savannah, Georgia to give a talk to middle and high school teachers about Frederick Douglass's narrative. I've done that many times. And my host there said, there's a local gentleman here, he's a collector, he'd like to meet you. Sure, we had lunch, long story short, takes me to his house. His name is Walter Evans. Uh, Walter is a retired African-American surgeon who grew up in segregated Savannah, went north for his higher education, Howard University as an undergrad, University of Michigan Medical School, practiced as a surgeon in Detroit, which where I'm from, uh, for, I don't know, 35 years. But his great passion in life was and still is collecting African-American rare books, manuscripts, and art. That day, he took me over to his house, which is a big, beautiful brownstone in Savannah, and got out on his dining room table portions of his personal Douglas collection, which is extraordinary. And that day I realized somebody needs to use this collection to do a new, a new full life of Douglas. Now, I didn't make the decision on that spot by any means. It took me many months because it was daunting. But the Evans collection is uh, extraordinary. And I'm happy to say I finally decided, yeah, okay, I'm going to try it. A full life of Douglas. And it took 10 years to do it. Uh, but that's why I ended up writing uh, that book. And when I got the Pulitzer Prize at this big luncheon they do in New York, Walter was one of my guests. He, he was there with me. And uh, that was only appropriate, because I wouldn't have written the book if I hadn't run into him. And was that just luck? It was, yeah, it was pure luck. Uh, I mean, I get invited to speak on Douglas all the time, but uh, I had never heard of him and never heard of the collection. I actually was not the first historian to see his collection, but I was the first to ever use it. What do you think you've changed? I mean, you, certainly your, your writing, especially on Frederick Douglass, which is considered the most important new contribution mm. to understanding. So, but what, what would you say that you added? Well, I don't know that historians change society very much. We'd like to think so. Um, I think I've had 
certainly some effect, influence uh, on hundreds and hundreds of students. You know that when they come back and tell you that. You don't always know it at the time. You know that when they write to you. You know that when they want to keep talking to you about a story, a piece of research, a historical problem. I do think historians can have impact, and I've been trying to do this now for 25 years, when we become public historians, when we get involved in documentary film, when we get involved in the National Park Service, which I've worked with a lot, with major museums like the African American Museum in DC, which I was involved with, and all kinds of other realms of where history meets the public. Uh, that's where we actually can claim some influence, uh, some impact. It's, it can't be measured. It's very difficult to know sometimes when you're doing it. Uh, but it's when we get outside of the boundaries of universities, outside the boundaries of our own classrooms, and try to find the real public. Now, some, some historians don't like that, right? No, I know they don't. In fact, uh, a lot of historians, and not without reason, are happy to stay within the guild and fight it out. <laughs> and, and I have good friends who, who, who are like this, who love a, a, a historiographical rumble. Let's, let's, uh, let's find the new big issue and fight about it, even if no one in the world cares. I've left that behind to a degree. I mean, it's still very important to understand the big moves in my field. I, I'm still involved in training graduate students, and this really matters with them. But give me a public library audience. Give me a museum audience. Give me a local book club any day to speak to than to go speak to a history department. Uh, and actually, the pandemic taught us a lot about that. Book clubs came out of the woodwork. I think I must, I must have spoken to, you know, on Zoom webinars, uh, 25 book clubs around the country. I spoke to four or five nursing homes, and, what, and actually retirement homes. These were retirees, 25 at a time, would, would read my book and ask me to, to talk to them. And my God, did they read the book. They knew it better than I did at that point. Um, reaching real people with historical questions that seem to really matter in our own time is kind of what I work for now. And actually, I found myself surprised how resonant Frederick Douglass is and was uh, across America in the age of Trump, in the age of a racial reckoning, in, in an age of a reckoning with democracy, because Frederick Douglass was, I think, the prose poet of American democracy. You, you want to understand democracy? Read some Douglas. So I, I think historians can have some impact, at least, when we step out of the boundaries of academia and find ways to talk to real people who read books. Because uh, there are millions of them out there. And just the many, many people listening here about some of the reasons that there is such resonance from Douglass's era to now? Mm -hmm. Well, Douglass's residence to now has so many threads to it. Take racism. Uh, racism not only didn't die, as the Chief Justice said it was in the uh, 
Shelby v. Holder case in 2014, it always revives, and sometimes in virulent ways that surprise us and shock us. Racism is not a static thing. It's not transhistorical. It changes over time. But if you want to read a life, I mean, and there are many, many others you could do this, we want to read about a life of a person who faced the most virulent forms of racism throughout his life, he was he was enslaved for 20 years. He was uh, a fugitive slave for nine years, which means he could be arrested and returned. He encountered every conceivable kind of discrimination throughout his adult life, and yet he became a ferocious believer in America's creeds, the basic creeds, the creeds of the Declaration of Independence, the creeds of natural rights. And... And he managed to find in prose over and over and over this dilemma, of this utterly paradoxical, contradictory dilemma of a society that believes in equality and natural rights and yet practices brutal discriminations based on race and gender and, and other ways. So you can see this question, this eternal, enduring question of race in Douglass's life uh, in thousands of ways. But take, a, take an opposite kind of view. Today we are fighting all the time about federalism, about the nature of the Constitution, about where power should be. Does power belong in the states? Does, power, does this power belong in the federal government? What are the powers of the states? And the Supreme Court uh, now is bringing down numerous decisions that are reifying states' rights. Well, Douglas had an enormous amount to say about that as well, from early in his life through the end of his life, about just what the place of government and law should be in human society as a means of trying to make us more equal. So Douglas is not always just about race. In fact, he developed, as well as any of the abolitionists, uh, an anti-slavery conception of the Constitution. What Do you have a favorite phrase or two from Frederick Douglass? Oh, favorite thoughts and quotes from Douglass? Well, there are many. Uh, yeah, I, I, have, I have a favorite one that is not as famous as some others. It's the last line of his long-form masterpiece, which was his second autobiography. It's called My Bondage and My Freedom, written in 1855. And it considered the date, the moment. It's the middle of the 1850s. The, the slavery crisis is tearing apart the country. And when he finishes this 440-page autobiography, which is a much more political autobiography than his first one, he says as long as heaven allows me to do this work, I will do it with my voice, my pen, and my vote. My voice, my pen, my vote. Well, that's all any of us have, unless you're fabulously wealthy, which can give you power. All we have, and most of us don't have the pen. Most people don't write, I mean, for the public. We have a voice and a vote. And many people don't vote. And many don't vote. But Douglas didn't end that sentence without putting that word vote on there with an exclamation mark. 
And that was at a time when the vast majority of black men, even in northern states, including his own of New York State, were not allowed to vote. He voted because New York had a property qualification for black men, not for white. You had to own $250 worth of real estate or property in order to vote. Um, so that's one of my favorite lines. It's a simple line, but his voice, his pen, and his vote, it's all he had. And it's all he ever had. If Frederick Douglass was alive today, what do you think he would think about uh, the state of race and yeah. the state of democracy? Of course, we don't know what Douglass would think if he were alive today, but I get asked that so often, I've finally come up with some answers. <laughs> I think one of Douglas's reactions would be, oh my God, you're still at this. Now, it wouldn't surprise him, I suspect, that racism is still an issue. He knew how enduring it was. He knew how useful it was. He knew how its ideolo the ideology of white supremacy had crawled into every corner of American culture. But I think he would be surprised by our inability to make our constitutional democracy work better. After all these attempts, all these crises, all these disruptions, and he lived the biggest one, the Civil War, to see us on the brink now of not civil war, but certainly tremendous division that has brought us some civil conflict um, might really discourage him. Again, I, I can't know or I can't say, but I think he would, he would ask us, how can you still not live up to some of these promises? Uh, is it that the promises are too big? But then he would no doubt say, no, they're not. They're the basics. Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, equality before law, uh, uh, slavery as a, a curse on humanity, those aren't, those aren't negotiable. Um, he might be discouraged, too, by, by race, uh, by racism, by our obsessions with it, uh, because I think in his own lifetime, even before he died in 1895, sometimes he just wanted to wish it away. I don't know, I think he'd also, he'd be such a proponent of, of using every element of education possible because one of the things you learn about a person like Frederick Douglass who had absolutely no formal education in his life and sometimes he gets celebrated for that, you know, the slave who made himself and made himself over and over and over, self-made man and all that. He would say nonsense. I wish I had been to college. He respected nothing more than learning. And when he met you, he would figure out what he can learn from you. Because in his case, schools were not the source of his education, people were. When you look forward, mm -hmm. what is it that you would like 
everyone to know about American history, which is not really all that long. Well, that I would want everyone to know about American history a few essentials, and that is that it is not a journey of progress. We want it to be. It's kind of in the air in America. We're supposed to be about progress. Uh, Westward Ho, or Out to the Moon, we're supposed to always be an escalator up. But we're not. We want to believe, as President Obama was so fond of saying, that the arc of history always bends toward justice. But sometimes, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Just look. Uh, and every time it doesn't bend toward justice doesn't mean we're just having a reckoning from which we just get better. Sometimes we don't get better. What I would want Americans to do is to, and it's very difficult in this country, is to gain a sense of tragedy. A genuine sense of tragedy, a Greek sense of tragedy, a Shakespearean sense of tragedy, maybe even a modern 20th century sense of tragedy, which means sometimes events have no exit. And we've had a few of those in our history. One of the dirtiest tricks our culture has played on us, and we're all part of it, I think historians have done their part here, is to peddle to our young that America is a place where things always get better. They don't. That's not what history is. Sometimes history is a uh, stride up and sometimes it's a stride down. But also, it's like anyone else's history. It's waiting there for you. And every time you think you, you, you're victorious, every time you think you've conquered, every time you think you're on the winning side, watch out. Watch out. Because it's waiting to come get you. Uh, I think we've just experienced this in some ways around questions of race and presidential politics, if you'd like. Uh, there was genuine reason to believe the United States had turned a profound corner in the election of Barack Obama, two elections of Barack Obama, and we had. But it turns out on the day after the election in 2008, uh, about 51% of the country was crying for one reason, and maybe 48 or 49 was crying for another reason, and they were waiting. So when there's a great turn, in, at least in your point of view, for the better, watch out. There will be a reaction. And my goodness, have we been seeing one? Have we been living through one? And we still are. That's David Blight, Yale professor of history, and the author of Frederick Douglass, Prophet for Freedom. He spoke with Washington Post correspondent Mary Jordan at the Academy of Achievement Summit in 2022. Earlier, we spoke with T.J. Stiles. I'm Alice Winkler, and until our next episode, this is what it takes from the Academy of Achievement. What it takes is generously funded by the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them. And thanks to you for listening.